0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. There's nothing like falling in love. (laughs) Don't take it from me. That comes from Delia Efron, screenwriter, author, and memoirist. Her new book, Left on 10th, is this kind of intense recounting of a period in her life when she was dealing with illness and grief and picking up the pieces after someone she loved died. And listening to this interview with NPR's Scott Simon, you get the sense that She's been through a lot, and she says the thing that helped her get through it all was writing about it, even if she thought she'd never write again. Love and loss are levelers. No one can avoid loss, and we all crave love, even as it can make losses harder to bear. Delia Efron has written a memoir that takes us through a short time in her life in which she was rocked by the loss of several loved ones welcomed a new love into her life, and then was struck by a disease that lurked within her family line. Her book is Left on 10th, and Delia Efron, the author of many screenplays, including You've Got Mail, essays, novels, and a play with her late sister Nora, joins us now from Manhattan. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you.
0: I find it daunting to try and explain what you went through in that short period, Great writer of dialogue that you are, Julia Efron. How do you, Do you, have you perfected a concise line to explain what happened?
1: Life gave me a story so big that I, I simply had to write it. But one of the things about this story is that it contains so much luck, good and bad, that it made me wonder about things like miracles. It It's also about friendship because I was carried through. So I'm really, oh my existence now to love and medicine.
0: Yeah. book opens with an awful moment in which you had promised Jerry, your beloved, I guess we say, first husband now, who was fatally ill, that he could die at home. But then there's almost a wrestling match for you to try and make that possible.
1: I was told that if I got all the documents, the DNR and the healthcare proxy, that If he fell or something, I could just call up the EMTs, and they would come over, and I would say, you know, please put my husband back in bed.
0: Yeah, DNR is uh, do not resuscitate.
1: Yeah, do not resuscitate. So I call 911, and five EMTs show up in my apartment. I'm thinking, all I want you to do is just pick up my husband and put him back in bed. And they said no. They were going to take him to the hospital. And he was so ill. He had pneumonia. I knew that he had, at most, 48 hours, maybe less. So it was a madness. And finally, I just started crying. And he died later on at about 3 in the morning. Uh, And I went into the room. I just said, I think he's dead. I mean, just so bluntly, like, like they... Like they'd beaten me into bluntness, you know? But it left me with a lot of trauma. And, and I felt a lot of guilt. I think people do feel guilty after their mates die that they haven't done every possible thing they could do. I mean, how could you, really?
0: Yeah. You wound up writing an essay about how difficult it was for Verizon to change their phone service, your phone service, after your husband's death. <laughs> yes. Which... The effect of that essay, which ran in the New York Times, was to introduce you to the man, Peter, who would be your second husband. I'm sorry. It's like you've got mail.
1: It, It was like I fell into my own romantic comedy. I simply couldn't believe it. I got this email from Peter and and it was like it was two months after I'd been invited to speak at a conference of Jungians. And I said to myself, what's a Jungian? I better meet one and find out. And Peter writes me, I'm a Jungian analyst, a psychiatrist. I thought, this is so spooky. Also, my sister had fixed us up 54 years before. I did not remember him at all. But he did come blessed by my sister. So we started to write, and it was, well, all the emails are in the book. Um, It was an amazing connection between us. And when I started to write the book, I looked at them, and I thought, well, I have to include them.
0: Mm -hmm. What's it like to be told almost as soon as you had regained some emotional footing in life that your own health was now in jeopardy?
1: (sighs) I was dealing with so much Grief and falling in love was like this beautiful magic that descended. And there's nothing like falling in love. And then to walk into that hospital for a routine checkup and just, I remember I, I just said to the PA who was looking at my, I said, I come every six months. My blood's always fine. And he said, it's not fine. And, you know, everything started spinning. And I knew that day I had leukemia.
0: Your sister Nora, at one point, contending with same disease, had refused a bone marrow transplant. You made another choice, although you were told the odds were just
1: 20%. First of all, I, had a, I did have the opportunity to have a different kind of transplant that didn't exist even when Nora was sick. Neither of us had a match. Okay, and what you want with a bone marrow transplant, you want a, a perfect match, and neither nor, nor I had one. But I had the opportunity to have this thing called a haplocord transplant, which is a donation from two donors. One is an adult donor, and one is uh, from the stem cells of uh, cord blood that a mother donates when she gives birth. And those are the stem cells that ultimately take over your marrow. And they're very adaptable in a way that the adult marrow might not be. So if you don't have a match, it's rather fantastic. And it didn't exist five years ago. It didn't exist for Nora. I mean, I don't know if she would have done that. We were very different. and
0: But but still, 20, 20% is...
1: It was low. Well, first of all, Dr. Robos, my amazing leukemia doctor, called me up and she said, you're not a statistic. I mean, she believed I should do it. And she then said to me, don't be scared of the treatment. Be scared of leukemia. So she just shifted the focus of my fear in a very brilliant way.
0: Your blood type is different. (laughs)
1: yes isn't that amazing i didn't even realize that
0: (laughs) that's because of the transplants right
1: right it it just (laughs) i mean one day uh, peter was looking at some record of something he said oh my gosh you have type a blood i've always had type o blood i mean it was of course you only have one blood type you're born with it and now i have a completely different one
0: so what else is different about delia Ephron now do you think
1: Part of what was so hard about being so sick was that I think writing is a calling and it's a place where I'm happiest and I thought I'd lost it when I was trying to get well i, I just thought oh, I'm never going to write again, you know, and now I have that happiness again in my life I'm able to you know I was able to write this book and and I do want to say i Because there's so much trauma associated with trying to get well from a a terribly serious illness that if you can do anything with it, if you can write it, draw it, paint it, dance it, do something with it, it will help you get not totally through. I think there's always Mm -hmm. residual, but it will really help you heal.
0: I feel the need to ask this question after all you've been through and survived. What's really important in life?
1: Mm. Well, love, no question about
0: it. Delia Efron, her memoir, Left on 10th, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, it has been a pleasure, Scott.